This is my conversation with Sarah Fitzclarage. Sarah is a writer, coach, and speaker with a fallibilist and optimist worldview. She founded Taking Children Seriously, which grew out of a paper journal in the early 1990s. I had a very fun conversation with her on the manner in which children are generically raised and why that is not helpful, the importance of taking children seriously and raising a child without coercion, fallibilism, the growth of knowledge, problem solving, her inspiration for founding Taking Children Seriously, and much, much more. Many of her ideas can be found on our website at fitz-clarage.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sarah Fitzclarage. So to start with, I think it would be nice to have a look at how children are traditionally raised. Uh, we could go into all the many reasons that's probably not the right way to raise a child later, but what, so I'd like you to give us a description of how you think children are generically raised in most societies and cultures. The generic way children are raised is coercively, is paternalistically. There's this idea in our culture that for other groups it's wrong to think of them as needing to be controlled for their own good. Like we no longer think that women need to be controlled for their own good. But when it comes to children, most people have still not seen that that is a mistake. So we create these authoritarian, top-down relationships in which we see our children as being like clay that we need to mould and shape, or that we're the captain of the ship, where the ship is the child, and we need to be steering the child on the journey towards adulthood, and that if we don't keep a firm hand on the tiller, then the child will sink like the Titanic or something. Adults think that children need to be controlled. So what's the problem with controlling children? The problem with controlling children is identical to the problem with controlling adults. Like, ask any adult what the problem is with them being coercively controlled and whatever argument they make about why they should be free to live their own life, free of others' coercion, that argument applies equally in the case of children. Children are people. And the reason I try to interact non-coercively with people, including with children, is because they're human beings just like I am. And we all have these creative minds that solve problems. And to the extent that we're interacting, we are sharing the joint problem situation of the interaction we're having. And the last thing I want to be doing is impeding the growth of knowledge, impeding the problem-solving process. And when you introduce coercion, control, you're impeding the process or potentially impeding it anyway. So taking children seriously is a condition of rationality. When we think about controlling an adult, it's just obvious to everyone that the coercion is immoral. And what's the problem with coercing people? It tends to suppress creativity. It tends to suppress the thinking that comes up with the new ideas and solutions that makes life better, not just for the individual, but collectively. It tends to suppress criticism and error correction. It impedes the growth of knowledge. Ultimately, children are people, just like adults are, and children dislike being coerced just like adults do. And it's crazy to say that because someone reacts badly to being controlled, that's evidence that they need to be controlled. 
How many adults who would naturally react badly to someone trying to control them would think that that's evidence that they need to be controlled? That's not how adults think when it comes to themselves, just when it comes to children. So why shouldn't children be controlled? Well, because there's nothing wrong with them. They're not defective. They don't need to be fixed. They don't need to be managed. They don't need to be controlled or coerced any more than we do. They're fine exactly the way they are as the fallible, creative, amazing human beings they are, just like we are. We adults tend to think we know best and that we need to be in control. But really, if anything, we should be in awe of our children's breathtakingly brilliant and fast ability to learn and solve problems and come up with amazing new ideas. Now, if you look at adults, we have had much more time for stuckness, staticity, uh, entrenchments to muck up stuff in our minds, to muck up our creative, rational thinking process. But our children, especially our young children, are incredibly creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Kapil Gupta. Um, I may be paraphrasing here, but it is, it's essentially this. So he says, adults are fools, children are wise. The adult hasn't seen a new thing in years. For the child, everything is new. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So creativity in the sense that we speak of it isn't how we normally, how maybe maybe we do normally speak of it, but it's not that how most people think of creativity. Most people think of creativity as being painting or drawing or some sort of thing like that. But creativity in our sense is, has a fundamental property to do with creating knowledge and the growth of knowledge, as you rightly said. Um, so would you describe how you think of creativity? Yes, creativity in the sense I'm using it is about this amazing human capacity we have to create new explanations, to solve problems. Uh, human beings are just uh, amazing. We are so creative. We have these incredible creative minds. I mean, look at what we've achieved. Our capacity to solve problems and transform life on earth is just awe-inspiring. No matter what circumstances people find themselves in, we have these incredible minds that are actively trying to solve the problem. We're actively coming up with potentially brilliant solutions that no one's ever thought of before. Now, of course, we're fallible. We make mistakes. And because we're fallible, we can never know for sure when an idea we've come up with, a solution to a problem that we've come up with is true or not. You know, we could always be mistaken, including when we feel very sure that we're right. But we do have the ability to solve problems, and we have solved problems. Problems are soluble. So even though we are all, in a sense, at the beginning of infinity when it comes to knowledge, we all lack knowledge, we all have the capacity to solve problems. All progress, all human flourishing, all improvement, all positive differences that anyone ever makes in the world, all learning in an individual mind, all of that is the growth of knowledge. And it's created in our incredible minds. We actively create knowledge through our own thinking. And we do that by what Karl Popper called conjectures and refutations. We start from our existing knowledge, our background knowledge, and our mind notices a problem or 
an anomaly or something, you know, it wonders about something. It wonders about why something is the way it is or what explains something. And then our mind makes these conjectures, guesses about what might explain and solve that problem. And then our mind automatically criticizes those guesses. It's checking to see whether any of them su survive critical scrutiny. And whichever guess does survive our critical scrutiny, we then tentatively adopt as the candidate solution. And then we're in a new problem situation where, where a new problem or anomaly or something we wonder about will become apparent. And the whole creative, rational, problem-solving process just starts happening again. And this all happens not just consciously, but unconsciously and inexplicitly. Most of it is not conscious. We're not consciously doing this, but we are doing it. That's how we create knowledge. That's how we learn. Knowledge grows in this way, conjectures and refutations, and it doesn't grow in any other way. And so the more free-flowing everyone's creative, rational thinking is, the more potential there is for learning, for improvement, for progress for the entire world. That raises the question, what kinds of things facilitate people's creativity, their problem-solving creative flow, and what kinds of things tend to interfere with it? Well, what does coercion do? It throws a spanner in the works of this creative, rational process. It's trying to impose an outcome instead of the outcome being created through reason, through this amazing process of conjectures and refutations. It embodies this false theory that might makes right. You know, whichever of the proponents is stronger is the one that their theory prevails. So whenever you're coercing someone else, whenever you're controlling your children, even if you're doing it with the very best of intentions, uh, for example, you subject your children to unwanted teaching because you're trying to give them knowledge that you think they need for their future, you are operating on this might-makes-right false theory. And you're also operating on what Karl Popper called the bucket theory of the mind. In this theory, the idea is that the mind is passive, passively receiving the knowledge that you're trying to pour in, like pouring water into a bucket. So in this theory, the mind is like a passive bucket. And then you're seeing the knowledge that you're trying to pour in as being like a fluid. But actually, knowledge is not like a fluid. It's created through this process in our individual minds. And our minds are always active. They're never passively receiving stuff from outside, like water being poured into a bucket. Nothing pours into our mind from outside in that way. We are never passively receiving anything ever. It's always an active process. Yes. And the systems and normal culture around learning is that it's completely opposite to what you just said about the mind. And it's like the it's like the mind is a bucket, like you said. And I'm not sure. Have you seen this viral video where a kid in a a kid in China uh, he's sitting in a classroom and he he's studying for he's like studying for a test and so he takes his hand he makes a sort of this kind of a shape where he puts it all across the words and then he'll take it he'll take it up to his brain and he'll try to absorb that knowledge written from the textbook and 
he'll do this for every single page. He won't read through it. He'll just take all his hands and collect all the words and put it across his brain. And it's like very funny. There's been a joke around, joke going around this. And unfortunately, or perhaps optimistically regarding your perspective on this, this is the perfect metaphor for how we're quote supposed to learn in school, in school at least, that you're just given some information and you're supposed to absorb all of that and then throw it out on a test paper. Yes, the school system not only operates on the bucket theory of the mind, imagining that knowledge can be poured into the mind like water into a bucket, but they also imagine that the bucket can upend itself and pour its knowledge onto a test paper. It's not only, by the way, in uh, formal education that we see the bucket, bucket theory of the mind operating. It's also operating any time, say, a parent is cross that they have told their child something and the child appears not to be listening to them. That is, again, uh, seeming to think that if they've said something, then the child should have received it. The child's mind is a bucket into which they can pour whatever ideas they want to pour. And we even see this occasionally with Popperians, uh, and I, I think I include myself in that in the, in the past, where when they offer a criticism and someone seems not to accept their criticism, then they leap to the conclusion that the person is not open to criticism, that they're being irrational. Well, that is suggesting that their mind is passive like a bucket and that they should passively receive the criticism that they're pouring in. But our minds are always active. We are conjecturing and criticizing our own conjectures. And if someone's criticism doesn't actually address the person's problem situation as they experience their problem situation, then they can't just receive it as though water were being poured into a bucket. There's lots of ways in which the bucket theory of the mind is just really, really deeply a part of our thinking as human beings, at least in, in our culture. But yes, the school system is a quintessential example of the bucket theory of the mind. And I think some people just tend to imagine that if you control and micromanage children, then that will help them passively receive the out-of-date knowledge that you want to pour in. <laughs> but of course it doesn't, because children's minds, just like our minds, are actively creative, actively creating conjectures, criticizing their conjectures, solving their own problems. Yes. So I think a common refutation to the point you just made about um, not controlling children would be that this is discipline. You know, they'd say that, no, this is how you instill discipline into the child. You make them do perhaps what they don't like so that they get stronger and harder and they're just living a more disciplined life. And I think you might be getting this argument a lot uh, regarding your philosophy because at first it seems like you're not allowing for this discipline aspect to happen in, the, in your taking children seriously philosophy. And I'd like to talk about this next. Uh, but if you just share thoughts on what you think about discipline and discipline in this sense where you're coercing someone so that they get, quote, more disciplined. Notice that adults who make such arguments would not like it at all if the same argument were said of them, if someone took it upon themselves to discipline them, to help them get some self-discipline or something. There's an equivocation in the way the word discipline is used. On the one hand, there's this 
self-discipline thing. I, I don't even like calling it self-discipline because to me there's a whiff of self-coercion suggested by the word discipline. But that good kind of discipline, the self-discipline, is where someone feels driven to do something, driven to achieve something. There's some incredibly valuable thing that they are trying to accomplish and they pour their heart and soul into it. Every fibre of their being is engaged in whatever they're doing. A friend of mine was doing the training to become a doctor and she was just never available to get together. And at one point I suggested that maybe she should be doing something a bit less full-on. And her horrified reaction just told me this is what she lives for. So that's one kind of discipline. That's the self-discipline. So the question is whether that kind of discipline, the self-discipline, is created or in any way facilitated by the coercive discipline. It's like parents think that if they force their children to practice the piano, that will help their children in the future. Maybe their child will become a concert pianist. Well, how many children who were forced for thousands of hours of their childhood to practice the piano become concert pianists? It's like one in a million. So you've wasted all that time when they could have been doing something far more valuable to them in that time that you've insisted that they practice something. The question is what someone wants to do now and it's what the person wants to do, not what someone else thinks they ought to be doing or what would be helpful for them later. If you think that something would be useful for them to be doing now for their future, why can't you just make that argument? Why can't you persuade them? If you can't persuade them, then what you're doing is just coercing them. And that is not going to help in any way. It's just going to throw a spanner in the works of the growth of knowledge. I should say that these parents and teachers who are doing this, all this disciplining, it's not that they are intending to be awful. They honestly believe that it is for the child's future that they are doing it. They honestly believe that if they don't discipline children, the children will end up, I don't know, living under a bridge or a drug addict or something. I do think it's worth bearing in mind that even things like this are not ill-intentioned because, for example, you may be interacting with a parent or teacher and trying to persuade them that perhaps they shouldn't be doing that. And how are they going to experience your criticism if it seems to be coming from a sort of infallibilist superior stance versus if you are at least assuming that they have good intentions. When you are engaged in a problem-solving, creative conversation, what we don't want to be doing is adding the baggage of branding the other person willfully evil or suggesting that they are ill-intentioned because that could be interfering with the growth of knowledge because people find it very difficult to hear criticism when they're, when you're saying that their experience of themselves is false and that they're just willfully evil. I completely agree with that, you know, good intentions can have evil results, but they're still stemmed from good intentions. Um, so just as an example that pops in my head, Osama bin Laden, uh, the man behind the terrorist attack, 9-11 and uh, attacks and whatnot. And so he, he actually had 
quite good intentions, but it was a huge mistake that he made on his part. If you see his letters, uh, there's this famous letter to America, he writes, uh, just just a year after, I think, the bombing happened. Um, and, sorry, the plane crash. Uh, and he's complete, he's still not accepting his mistake, but he's saying, he's he's proposing all the reasons for why America should adopt Islam. And he's saying that this was all well-intended and we were doing this for our sake. And he really thought that, you know, this is something that I'm doing as a good, but it was objectively bad, morally bad, I'd say. Yes. And notice that if even a terrorist is psychologically innocent, honestly thinks his actions are right, how much more so is it the case that our loved ones are psychologically innocent when they're doing something we feel sure is wrong? This viewing people as being psychologically innocent, as doing the best they can with the knowledge they have, as fallible human beings in any given moment, is very important. It is a part of being fallibilist. Because when you are thinking that the other person is not psychologically innocent, you are assuming that they know the truth and they are willfully choosing evil. That is not what's happening. People just don't know. And if you can interact with people with this compassionate, loving, generous-hearted spirit of giving people the benefit of the doubt and realizing that maybe they just don't know, or of course maybe we ourselves might be mistaken in thinking that something they think is incorrect or something they're doing is wrong. It makes a difference when you assume that people are not psychologically innocent, you are in effect suggesting that they should already know the truth or that they do already know the truth. Or you're suggesting that their mind is a passive bucket receiving your criticism, your complaints, as if it were just a passive bucket receiving water. The mind is not a passive entity, it's active. Yes, completely. And going back to the discipline aspect, so just self-indulging here for a moment. In my school, discipline is a very important thing. Like they explicitly state discipline is comes above everything here. And what what their definition of discipline is more like the course of stat and a better name would be obedience other than discipline. And it's like, you just follow whatever you're told and you do not question it. That's their discipline. And obviously I'm not a fan of that, but I am a fan of discipline in the sense um, you sort of had spoke about uh, the, at the risk of sounding too cliche here, but self-discipline and the drive from within that kind of discipline really speaks to me and so i'd say that i'd be disciplined in that sense but the way they're advocating discipline in my school is like no you just have to be obedient to this coercive system your school sounds very bismarckian bismarck wanted a ready supply of obedient soldiers for the German Empire. And the way to do it, he thought, was compulsory schooling, making children obey. Is that what we want? To raise people who will just obey orders instead of doing what they think is right? And don't we want our children to have the wherewithal to say no if someone is trying to physically or sexually abuse them, for example. How good is obedience then in that kind of situation? How virtuous is it to do what seems wrong to you 
by obeying someone else instead of doing what is right according to your lights. That's what obeying means. It means acting wrongly by your own lights. Is that what we want people doing in the world? Children are not a means to our ends. They have their own ends. They have their own wishes, their own preferences, problems, ideas, concerns. They're moral agents in their own right, just like we are. And they should act rightly by their own lights, just like we should. They shouldn't be fracturing their integrity by acting wrongly by their lights. I think obedience is an abominable quality to value. Actually, this reminds me of an incident that happened when I was 11 or maybe 12. My maths teacher in school at the time was someone my classmates and I never dared disobey. He had that kind of presence about him that just made everyone be careful not to cross him. So when, at the end of the school year, he handed out to each of us a red book full of maths problems, in fact, uh, 590 simultaneous equations, and he instructed us to solve all of them and have the work completed by the first day of the new school year and to bring our books back then. Well, I certainly didn't even imagine disobeying him. And probably most of my classmates also wouldn't even think of disobeying that order. And so I slogged through this red maths book solving these simultaneous equations for my entire summer holiday. It just really put a whole a blight on my summer holidays. It was utterly miserable. And so when the first day of the new school year came about, imagine my surprise when by the end of the lesson, the maths lesson with this maths teacher, the maths teacher hadn't even mentioned the red book and the homework and the 590 simultaneous equations that he told us to solve. And he dismissed the class. So I said, hang on a minute, sir. What about the homework? Aren't you going to collect our red books so you can mark the homework? And he says, good grief, no. You didn't think I was serious, did you? And he laughs, laughs. Inside, I am feeling absolutely furious. As far as I was concerned, he had stolen my summer. I wanted him to mark the work he had set. And I said, but you told us to do the book. And he said, if someone told you to run over a cliff, you'd do that too, would you? That reply was just totally unexpected. Here was this teacher that I thought would brook no dissent, I thought could not be disobeyed. And he was, or at least he seemed to be asserting that the mere fact that someone in a position of power over you tells you to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. They can tell you to do something, but ultimately you have your own mind and you choose whether to do it or not. And I just saw that... I shouldn't be mindlessly obeying something that I don't want to do or that doesn't seem best to me. So getting to taking children seriously, what do you think is... So I think the way you advocate it is that there is a pressing need to be taking children seriously. You're not coercing the whole system. Uh, you're not coercing this theory on other people. You're giving them a great explanation for why they should they ought to take children seriously, which is a great way to have tell these tell people. 
but so my question is maybe what's the need to be able to be taking children seriously maybe societally and culturally at large what would be possible for individuals and the world in general if everyone were taken seriously it's an amazing thing to think about what if everyone knew that human beings are amazing like we are amazing we're incredibly creative we can solve problems problems are soluble what if everyone knew that problems are soluble and we can solve them what if everyone were optimistic about everything instead of pessimistic what if everyone knew that our minds are active not passive that our minds are not like a bucket passively receiving stuff from outside like water pouring water into a bucket what if everyone knew that everyone is fallible and everyone lacks knowledge what if everyone knew that truth is not manifest that it's not always obvious what the right thing to do is and sometimes we make a mistake and sometimes we do the wrong thing but in our own minds consciously we're always trying to do the right thing like how would that affect relationships in the world if people were giving each other the benefit of the doubt what if everyone were free what if everyone took the position that other people's lives are for them to determine what if people just were able to live and let live with other people instead of feeling compelled to try to insist that other people behave a certain way what if we brought the enlightenment into every sphere of life every group including children were taken seriously no one was going around thinking that certain groups need to be controlled for their own good like what might be possible in the world that isn't possible now and not just for the whole world but for each individual just think about how much less suffering there would be in the world how much suffering is magnified by when we're in a state of upset we infallibilistically imagine that what we're thinking is the revealed truth instead of realizing it's probably mistaken it may not be quite right especially if we're feeling very upset yes um so i think this is so with this philosophy you're kind of essentially going against the way children are being raised for millennia and maybe you won't like this argument but uh there are in other species of mammals so this is kind of the same way the child learns from the parent uh the parent the mother or the father and they follow the footsteps and like i said you may not like this argument because animals they don't essentially are have that creative spark inside of them or the creative power that allows them to produce knowledge and solve problems but don't you think there would be some ancient wisdom instantiated in this culture of having children raised uh in sort of a structured a little course of way well all i can say is that in the 50 odd years i've been thinking about this stuff i have never come across a good argument for coercing children and about what you said about animals animals learn from their mothers in the sense that they pick up behaviors that are already built into their genes it's not learning from their mothers in the way human children do 
there's not really any similarity between an animal's mind and a human mind. The human mind is actively creative. Sorry, uh, yes, the other one was like, so even people and human society, they've been raising children in this way for thousands of years. And is there some sort of ancient wisdom? Shouldn't there some sort of ancient wisdom be instantiated in this kind of raising children? That's a fallacious argument. The idea that because something has always been done this way, therefore we should continue doing it this way, therefore it's right, it's, it's fallacious. It's an argument for stasis, for everything staying the same, and that surely can't be good. We want things to improve, not stay the same. Actually, it's worse than things never improving. When you take that view, you're systematically impeding progress because for everything to stay the same takes significant coercion. Otherwise, human beings with our incredibly actively creative minds will just keep reaching for the light, keep noticing problems and trying to solve them and coming up with better ideas, better explanations, better ways of doing things, improving, improving, improving. It's not that there's no knowledge embodied in traditions. There is knowledge embodied in traditions, just like there's knowledge embodied in genes. But with our brilliant creative minds, we can criticize traditions and come up with better ideas and make progress. Yes, I wanted to ask you what inspired you to create, to found this beautiful philosophy. Mm. Um, if it was your experience, like if you were taken seriously as a child or... I think some of my childhood experiences probably did have an effect. And certainly I was thinking about freedom and what the right way to treat people is from a very young age. When I was very young, we lived in a rural village and this was in the 1970s and the parents of the village children were much more hands-off than parents are today. So my friends and I, even at the age of, you know, four and five or something, spent loads and loads of time exploring the countryside around our houses without any parents. And often we would be at one of the children's houses and there would be no parent there, like the parent had gone out shopping or something, and no one thought there was anything weird about that. So I had the experience as a child of not thinking that children need to be constantly monitored and managed and all that stuff that typically happens now. And I also had experiences like looking after my baby sister when I was six years old while my parents went out. I begged them to do that, by the way. It wasn't, uh, <laughs> it wasn't their idea. And one of the things that we used to do was read adventure stories in which children had adventures and went on holidays without their parents. And my parents didn't see anything wrong with, to some extent, recreating some of those stories, like on one occasion, my sister and I sailed to an island in the middle of a lake and stayed the night on the island without our parents. And obviously, my parents were staying on the edge of the lake, but they weren't on the island with us. And that was when we were really quite young. I, I'm not sure how old, maybe seven and nine or something like that. So I just... I just felt competent as a child. And then another thing that I think may have had an impact was that 
my experience of life before I went to school was this joyful freedom. And the shock when I started school at four was really appalling. I had never been treated the way I was treated in school, being beaten and smacked and humiliated, told to stand in a corner with my nose against the wall and having my knuckles wrapped with a ruler and all sorts of awful things. I was forced to eat the disgusting school lunches and such that I actually vomited on one occasion. There was just all this awful, brutal stuff happening at school. And the micromanagement, that every moment of your time was just, oh, I just absolutely hated it, hated it with a passion. And also because it was, the whole school thing was so stressful, I didn't learn to read, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't learn anything really, I just, it was a, just a nightmare. And when I was nine, I still couldn't read. And then I actually taught myself to read with the help of my parents on a long family car journey. I would spell out a word and then my parents would tell me what the word said and then gradually, gradually over the course of the hours and hours of that car journey, I learnt to read the first page of this book, The Wind in the Willows and just having that experience of teaching myself to read like that. I didn't feel incompetent and school certainly didn't seem like a fantastic way of learning anything. It just seemed to be horrible. As time went on in my childhood, I noticed more differences between how different adults treated children. Like later in my childhood, when I was living in a different place, some of my friends would complain to me about the awful things their parents did and how they just micromanaged all their time. And I remember thinking, well, you know, although I, I had many criticisms of my own parents, they were certainly not like that. So I noticed and I wondered about what the right way to treat children was. And I was always just wanting to be free. And the other thing I noticed is that adults are fallible. I noticed when an adult was absolutely certain that they were right and actually they were completely mistaken. Like the time I was accused of stealing a pencil sharpener and I just, I hadn't. <laughs> uh, so that kind of thing, just I just thought about things like that. And the other thing is that my parents had this explicit policy that they would mention every now and then, which is no news is good news. In other words, in the absence of word to the contrary, assume that everything's fine. So they didn't worry about me. Like I would go off cycling for the whole day at the age of nine. I traveled from the far east of England to the far west of England, going through London at the age of nine on my own. They just didn't worry, or if they did, I didn't know about it. Early in my childhood, or at some point in my childhood, I watched The Prisoner, which was a 1967 British television series that was, for me anyway, it was all about freedom. The central character was incarcerated in this sinister village and every episode involved him trying to escape and them bringing him back. And they called him number six and he would say, I am not a number, I am a free man. And I read, when I could read, I read George Orwell's 1984 and Animal Farm and other books that really sparked thinking about freedom. And then when I was a student, I was watching a daytime television 
talk show with a studio audience and a host and a sour-faced expert special guest. And this expert special guest was asserting that children raised without discipline would grow up to be selfish and entitled and that they would never learn to relate well to others. And she said something like that too many parents try to be friends with their children and fail to give them the discipline they need and then they wonder why their children don't care about anyone but themselves. And the audience clapped appreciatively and I was about to turn off the TV in absolute disgust when this woman in the audience with kind eyes raised her hand looking as though she was in slight trepidation and the host went over to her and asked her what she wanted to say and she stood up and she said something like My husband and I have six children and in our experience being nice to children has not resulted in them becoming selfish or self-centred. In fact, they're just as kind to each other and to other people as we are to them. They're kind children. And I think that children treated kindly grow up to treat others kindly. And if you bully children the way you're suggesting, they'll follow your example and become bullies themselves. And I just knew that if I were ever to be a parent... I was going to be like that audience member with the kind eyes who bravely went against the entire consensus of the audience and the sour-faced expert. I was not going to be following the advice of the sour-faced expert. So a few years later, when I was a young mother-to-be, pregnant with my first child, I was trying to find people who might share my ideas about children. You know, by that time, I really had developed quite uh, significant ideas about children being free, just like I thought adults should be free, and that children should have the same rights, respect and control over their lives as we have. And I didn't think it was right to be coercing and micromanaging and manipulating, moulding and shaping children. I just saw children as people, just like I see adults as people. And I also, of course, totally rejected the entire idea of school and forcing children to go to school. And I had, at some point I had discovered that school is not compulsory, at least in England. So I was trying to find people who might share these ideas and it was quite soul-destroying. It was, there was just nobody at all. So I started looking internationally and really casting my net widely. This was, of course, before the days of the internet, so it was much more difficult than it is now to find people who are like-minded. In all this searching, I met precisely two people in the world who agreed, and one of them was David Deutsch. I started speaking about these ideas, like uh, when my child, when my first child was a, a tiny baby, like firstborn, I was speaking at mother and baby coffee mornings and conferences. I'd, I had a public debate at a conference with Professor Anthony Flew. I spoke at a, an autonomous learning, so-called autonomous learning workshop. And this was when my baby was three months old. And I couldn't believe, I was so, so sad that even in an autonomous learning workshop, the people there were into smacking their children. And one of them actually said to me, come back when your baby is eight months old. You'll have had to smack her by then and then you'll be singing a different tune. And everyone clapped. And when this kind of thing used to happen, I used to go home and cry. It was just, it was just awful. <laughs> Nobody agreed at all. 
And the the few people I found who did agree didn't have children. I couldn't find any parents who agreed. So I eventually started a journal in my attempt to find like-minded parents. And, and then the Taking Children Seriously internet discussion list. And then eventually the Taking Children Seriously website. And the more speaking engagements I did, you know, the, the more I was invited to do. And gradually, uh, speaking all over the world about taking children seriously, I met many lovely, like-minded parents. So that's how it all started. Yeah, that's a great story to hear. Experiences from your childhood and eventually coming up to this point. Yeah, it's incredible to hear the everything that added up to this great philosophy. So I mentioned on Twitter we were having this conversation and we were lucky to get a lot of good questions. Um, it was really nice to see them. And one that came in was, how can working class people ever hope to employ taking children seriously? And so about this question, so it, this is like a specific kind of a question. And later, maybe after this, you could answer how we could scale taking children seriously as a philosophy for larger and more people to adopt this idea in cultures and society and the education system. Taking children seriously doesn't depend on class or income any more than treating anyone decently does. If you're a poor single parent family like I was, find a way to generate an income that doesn't require you to lock your children in an institution while you go out to work for hours and hours and hours every day. There are all sorts of possible ways of setting up your life so that you can actually treat the people in your life decently, including your children. And problems are soluble and you can solve them. When people speak about taking children seriously as something that you employ, that makes it sound like a method or a recipe. Because we're fallible and we all lack knowledge, there can't be a fixed set of practices that if you do those things, you will be employing taking children seriously. Problems are resolved in the moment they arise in real life interactions. It's, there's no fixed recipe. And we all disagree about what constitutes taking children seriously anyway. For example, I have discovered that some people's idea of taking children seriously is parents obeying their children and endlessly sacrificing their own wishes. And other people think that what constitutes taking children seriously is more like any mutually delightful, non-coercive relationship in which no one is being self-sacrificial and problems are getting solved to everyone's satisfaction and other people have a different view again. And that's before we even start considering particular practical details. It would be absolutely absurd for me, a very fallible, fallibleist, to set myself up as an authority on what constitutes taking children seriously and foisting it on people as if I think my current take, which is significantly different from my take 30 years ago, is the revealed truth or something. We can all come up with ideas, explanations, notice mistakes, make changes. We all have amazing, actively creative human minds. There is no authority. And if taking children seriously is true and useful, then the details will emerge in our interactions in the moment. It's not 
a fixed set of things that you can employ. We are fallible. Yeah, I think fallibilism is at the heart of this philosophy. Yes, absolutely. We are all fallible and we all lack knowledge. So why is it that the school system and many parents feel justified in an authoritarian approach to their dealings with their children? It's dangerous. If you set yourself up as an authority and you try to channel children into your vision of how they should be and what they should do and what they should learn, what if you're mistaken? There are these implications of the fact that we're fallible that are just completely not taken into account by the school system. And as I said, our minds are not buckets into which you can pour knowledge like the entire school system seems to assume. So I have no idea how to tweak the existing school system to make it take children seriously. But of course, one vital thing would be to make the whole thing entirely voluntary and not just nominally so, but are the children genuinely free? Do they experience themselves as being free to go to school, to do something else, to learn in a completely different way if that's what they want to do? Yes. I think through this lens, uh, like you hinted at before, the ideal, quote, education system wouldn't be an education system at all. You'd have to turn school upside down completely to have something infallible or, sorry, to have something fallible and something that allows for the creativity to display its own work. But yeah, you were earlier describing your own experience at school. I I have mostly the same experience, I'd say, except uh, of the beating and the violence. I'm going through school right now as well. And right now when I realize this thing isn't important and this thing doesn't make sense, but many people, many classmates are stuck in this idea of, you know, they just have to do this. There is no other way. And they can't just think of another way because they just fixed in a certain way of thinking, which says they have to study and they have to get good grades and whatnot. But the more I explored ideas like these, the more I thought, you know, this really, for me, doesn't matter at all. And I, I was just, trying to get away from it as much, but some people would still be stuck and they'd go through the same thing every day. And you can't blame them because the way the system is created, it's limiting them to conjecture new ideas to go against the system. Yes, they just don't know. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it's a blind spot, but it's in the nature of blind spots, that it's always easier to see other people's than it is to see our own. But I I really admire your enthusiasm and your desire to make a difference in the world. And just bear in mind that even if your classmates are not immediately persuaded by whatever you're saying to them about all this stuff, it's quite possible that over time, just being around someone like you, with your incredible fallibilism, your enthusiasm, your creativity, might well, and I'm sure will, make a huge difference for them. Um, Yeah, this has been a lovely call. Thank you for your time. And this was an amazing conversation. It's very fun to do.
Oh, you're so welcome. Anytime. <laughs> and if anyone's interested, the Taking Children Seriously website, it's down at the moment, but it will be back up at takingchildrenseriously.com. And my own personal website is fitzclarage.com.